So I'm going to tell you about the future, as it says in the door. Not because I get visions. Visions get your psychiatric referral. But the future is not like the Isle of Skye or Tasmania, a destination awaiting our arrival. The future is much more like Sydney Opera House or the Great Western Railway, something we imagine, design, plan and build. And in the words of William Gibson, the so-called science fiction writer, the future is here, just not evenly distributed. So everything I'm telling you I can see happening somewhere, and it's just going to happen everywhere. So let's uh, think a little bit about the past, because as Santayana said, those who don't learn from the lessons of the past are condemned to repeat it. So we've had two revolutions in healthcare. This uh, is the first revolution in the 19th century. What is this icon? Any of you recognise this? In Somewhere in London, Oxford Street, yep. Broad Street. John Snow, John Snow. John Snow is a doctor who removed the pump, the handle of the pump. There's, there's a pub there, you can go when you go to London, so you must go and see the John Snow pub. And he removed the handle of the pump. And all these cases of cholera were drinking water from the pump. He didn't know anything about bacteria. Bacteria weren't discovered for another 30 years. So it was empirical, but not scientific, like the first Industrial Revolution. They didn't know the... I mean, Stevenson didn't know the physics of steam. He just knew what it was something. You know, steam engines would drive things. And I often think of the first Industrial Revolution, like the first healthcare revolution in the 19th century in Europe. And it were, it, for many years, the most important building in any city in Europe was what? If you go to um, Milan or Paris or Cathedral, that's where the power lay. God, God. In the 19th century, the, the most showy, important building was the railway station. The railway station. St Pancras Station. Um, Waverley Station, Edinburgh. They looked quite like cathedrals. You know, the windows were. Um, that was the power. But in the 20th century. The new cathedrals became the hospitals. If you walk along Euston Road from St Pancras and UCLH, do you know University College London Hospital? It's like a cathedral, white, shiny. Hope is there, and health is there, hospitals. And it's been fantastic. The second revolution has been fantastic. Now, it's 50 years since I went to medical school. And um, these, are things, you know, these are things that have happened. Quite astonishing what's happened. It's been the same as this. But, but, at the end of 50 years of progress, every society on earth faces three big problems. So we've had 50 years of money and technology and 20 years of evidence-based medicine, quality improvement. But every society on earth faces three big problems. And the first of these is unwanted variation. And this was first described by Jack Venberg in 1999 as variation that cannot be explained by variation in need or explicit preferences. And we published, like Jack Venberg, following him, atlases of variation. And many of these maps we publish, we don't know what good is. You know, sometimes you know what good is. Percentage of people admitted a stroke unit, higher the better. Percentage of hips that need replaced in five years, the lower the better. But what's the right level of antidepressant prescribing? or MRI, or knee replacement, I don't know. So we publish these maps mainly to, to disturb the medical profession. 
to upset them um, because they all thought they were doing evidence-based medicine and guideline-based medicine. But then here's, here's some of the map. This is, uh, this is the percentage of people dying in hospital from about 45% to 75%. That's probably a million pounds, a billion pounds spent on people dying in hospital above the average. But is the average right? What's right for your population? I don't know. What do you think? And the answer is people had never thought. Um, so we produced these maps, this map here, ultrasound activity, everything we looked at. Three-fold difference, five-fold difference, 15-fold difference in thyroid testing, all by people who thought they were doing the right thing. Now, the importance of unwanted variation is that it shows two other problems. And the first of these is the underuse of effective high-value interventions. So uh, one example of this was treatment of atrial fibrillation, which when we did the, the work a couple of years back, we estimated there'd be about 5,000 fewer strokes and 10% less vascular dementia if they managed atrial fibrillation as well as they did in Bradford. No more money, no more technology, just Bradford had got a grip of it. And underuse is often complicated by inequity. So this is a study from Oxford showing that hip replacement and knee replacement in the most deprived populations was about 30%. This is in the NHS. It's not, it's not private practice or anything. So there's a huge difference that is revealed by unwanted variation. And now, the other, hi, the other problem revealed by unwanted variation is overuse. Now, this is the most important picture in healthcare. I want you all to take a, a, a picture of this. Get your phones out. This is. Uh, yeah, yes, so you must take it. This is, this is it's compulsory. It's compulsory. You must take it. Have any of you have uh, seen this before? This is the most important picture in healthcare. First drawn by Vedas Don Abadian in 1966. And um, you see, in healthcare, um, as you put more money to healthcare, the benefits grow up and then they flatten off. I can give you an action photo too. There'll be more of this, don't worry, there'll be more coming. So as the benefits go up and then they flatten off. So once in a lifetime cervical smear, 10-year interval, 5-year interval, 3-year interval, 1-year interval. One intensive care bed per million population, 10, 20, 30. The trouble with healthcare is that all healthcare does harm. And the harm goes up in direct proportion to the amount of healthcare we do. Now, quality improvement is very important, but quality improvement, it moves that line down a little bit, and it moves that line up a little bit, but it doesn't change the relationship. And then Don Abadian subtracted the harm from the benefit, and he called this the point of optimality. Now, I'd like to turn to your neighbour and discuss where you think, in your own society, healthcare has gone beyond the point of optimality. For example, antibiotic prescribing. Okay? So turn to your neighbour now, introduce yourself if you haven't met before, and uh, work out where we've gone beyond the point of optimality. <laughs> You've ever seen overuse? In your, uh, you, say, yeah, I can, you can always pick in someone in the audience, you see, when you're in stand-up, you pick in someone. <laughs> what do you guys make of overuse? Just one example. Uh, what else might come up? Well, this interesting one here that Tony's raised about um, the eighth or ninth round of chemotherapy. And, this is, and then you say, this is not about the money. 
You know, it's not about the money. It's about, and I'm not saying that Ed Nolan should have the eighth or ninth round of chemotherapy, but did they really know what the option was? And same with care in the last year of life. And remember that map I showed you of the percentage of people dying in hospital. My estimate is that we spend about a billion pounds a year doing more harm than good in the last year of life. Um, and that's all to do with anxieties and drift and surgery. This comes up, you know, the hip, hip replacement was the operation of the century. Um, yep, shoulder decompression. Uh, so this is the debate we have to have now, and this is the most important. Now, let's, let's just look ahead now as we, we start to think what the world is going to be like. So this is Avedis Donabedian, 1980. In 1966, he invented structure, process, and outcome, quality assurance. Um, but then 1980, his big book in 1980, he did this diagram, which uh, uh, was hardly, hardly been recognised, but it's, this is the, the key issue in every country now. And then sometimes you get what we call triple whammy healthcare. So the knee, um, arthroscopic surgery, this is the professor of orthopaedics in Oxford, Andy Carr, overused and effective and potentially harmful, 50-fold variation in knee, in knee arthroscopy, and poor people not getting knee replacement. So there's an example of the, all three of those factors happening at the one time. It's called triple whammy healthcare. That's a new scientific definition of healthcare. Now, here's a sort of question that I've been asking um, for many years. So when I first came to, to Oxford, I asked a question, is care for people with asthma in Oxfordshire better than Cambridgeshire? And I said, we don't know. Uh, 45 years ago, we didn't know. Now, I can tell you, 45 years later, we still don't bloody well know. You said a billion pounds a year in asthma, and we don't know if care is better in Oxfordshire or Cambridgeshire, or Hungary, or Wales, or Denmark. We're not looking at healthcare on a population basis. But you have to look at it on a population basis, because that's where the value comes in. So starting to think about asking questions, not about the quality of care, but we'll come on to what we mean by that in just a minute. So let's think what we're going to be doing in future. Well, let's look back. For the last 20 years, we've done four things that are all very, very important. Prevention, evidence-based decision-making, very, very important. I'm glad you're coming to the course. Who's all in the course here? Hands up. Yeah. Um, so evidence-based decision-making, very, very important. Quality improvement, very, very important. And cost reduction. But you see, while we've been doing these four things, the unwanted variation has either developed or persisted or increased. So these are necessary but not sufficient. So we now need to focus on value. Value. Now, value is a tricky word. English is a very difficult language. Ich bin ein Gastarbeiter in England. Ich komme aus Schottland. I'm a Gastarbeiter. And um, England, English is very difficult. And you're here in Oxford, you're they say, uh, you know, they say Cambridge is good at science, but Oxford's good at language. And just um, over the road, there's Oxford University Press, which is where the Oxford English Dictionary comes from. I met a friend of mine who works there the other day, and I met him in the street out here. I said, well, what have you been doing this morning? He said, uh, each, and then walked on. <laughs> <laughs> Each, he may still be at each, or he may have moved on to EB something or other, or I don't know what he, but each, uh, back. So, 
values in the plural means principle. Like this hospital's values are compassion and excellence. Uh, but value in a singular has got a different meaning. It's a bit more economic. And I do find it, I don't know the Hungarian for value, but I'd like you to write it down for me. But I do find it um, quite consistent in different countries. So I now want you to turn to your neighbour again and discuss the meaning of the word value. When I say the word value in the singular is the key word for the next 20 years, what does the word value in healthcare mean to you? Okay, a couple of minutes to discuss with your neighbour. There's three, firstly there's personal value, you know, to you as an individual, what is the value to you? And this is very close to the, the work you're doing on the evidence-based healthcare course. And then there's population value, you can have all these, these uh, PowerPoints, um, anyone who That's wants them. Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, and then secondly there's population value, and there's two aspects to that. One is allocative, pop, uh, how do you allocate resources, and the second is how do you use them once they've been allocated. We'll go through both of these. Now, this is another, another um, interesting word, waste. Waste. And I mentioned the Hungarian for waste, too. Um, I think someone said Hungarians get 17 noun endings, so uh, we, we won't ask you to get through them all. But. So waste, this is very Toyota. Um, waste is anything that does not add value. Have you heard of Kaizen? It continues quality improvement, Toyota, Toyota. And Muda is waste, they hated waste in, in Toyota. Um, and waste was anything that's not add value. So if a, if a patient comes to the clinic and the notes are missing, it's waste. We hate it. There's another very nice Japanese word called uh, motanai. Uh, I think my pronunciation is quite good, but probably there's no one can correct me in the room. Mm -hmm. But a Japanese student taught me this, motanai is a feeling of remorse for having wasted resources. Oh, I shouldn't have ordered that MRI. Oh, no, 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 no. Why did I order it? I don't see much of that in the NHS in England or uh, Motai Nai. And the, the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges wrote a very good report where they talked about the culture of stewardship. Now, stewardship is quite a difficult word, English word. And I haven't found a German equivalent for it. Uh, Italian sort of curation, but there's a, a biblical word, um, and there's a similar story in the Quran too. The good steward leaves the land in better condition than they find it. They don't own the land, but they look after it, and they leave it in better condition. And of course, the word stewardship has come back into use with environmental issues. We are the stewards of the planet. We hold it in trust for future generations. So this is trying to get the clinicians to think you know, that they are the stewards of the health service. They're not just spending the money, they're, they're, they have to keep the thing going. <coughs> so ordering 12% more images every year doesn't seem to me to be very sensible if, if we are stewards of something. And the fact that you're not being charged for it or it's not coming off your budget is, is it's a, it's a culture. I'll come back to the issue of, of culture. Okay, let's take... So, so this, is the, this is the jargon. Productivity is uh, outputs over inputs. Number of operations done per theatre session. Nothing to do with outcome, doesn't matter, just um, percentage, of drugs that are, percentage of drugs that are genetic um, is a measure of productivity. 
Efficiency is outcomes over costs. Outcomes over costs. And value is more than this. Because if you were running a health service somewhere in the Brechin or somewhere in Hungary, in a hospital, I don't want you just to get efficiency for the patients who get to the hospital. I want you to be thinking about what region is Debrecen in, in Hungary? Is it in a month? Does it look after our county? Is it Debrecen, the city? What, what region is it in? Carpathia. Carpathia. So, uh, are we seeing the right people with asthma? I wonder if there's people out there who are not getting a knee replacement who would benefit more than the ones we're seeing because their GPs haven't referred them. You see the difference here between value and efficiency. Now, here's the new agenda which we'll go through. So the, the four things that have been done have to continue. Prevention, evidence-based decision-making, quality improvement and cost reduction. All absolutely essential and must continue. But while we've been doing it, unwanted variation, overuse and underuse have developed. So here are the, new, the three new things that we need to do. Number one, ensure that every individual receives um, information that will help them make the right decision. And this is the, uh, this is the model we, we developed, or the picture we developed for evidence-based medicine. It's, it's the 1996 um, editorial, evidence-based medicine, what it is and what it isn't. But uh, uh, Wittgenstein said that every idea is a picture. And uh, we were very much criticised for promoting what, what they called cookbook medicine with evidence-based medicine. And if we, I think if we could have put a picture in the BMG editorial, it would be much better. But um, editorial, editorials don't take pictures. But this is, you see, here's the picture. So there's the evidence derived from the study of groups of patients. And there's the clinical condition of this patient this patient, who's often very different from the people in the randomized controlled trial, and it's uh, the other diagnosis, risk factors, genomic information, and then there's the values this patient has. What value do they place on risk-taking? You know, one in a thousand cataract operation goes wrong, so what value do you place on that? Not just the one in a thousand, but the fact some people place a value in, you know, I wouldn't like to take a decision that might go wrong. I, you know, I, I couldn't live with it. Other people say, oh, wow, okay, sarah, sarah, you know. Doesn't bother me. So this is evidence-based medicine. Um, and we're in now in the third healthcare revolution. And the third healthcare revolution is driven by three forces. Citizens' knowledge and where's my jacket? That's not the third thing. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What am I looking for? My phone, my phone. No, no, just, uh, I just... I better find it in case... Uh, <laughs> so the, th the third... We're in the third revolution. And this is... If you were all genomic people... Um, this is more important than the human genome. This will change things more than the human genome. Even, even the professor of medicine agrees with that now. I think he does. I think John Bell agrees with it. <laughs> uh, thank you, Erica. The, um, 
the, the human genome and meat, it, it, it creates, you know, it produces information. But it's not that different from biochemical information. But this, this changes the power balance. And it's just we are in the health service in this country 20 years off the pace in using this. I still get letters from the hospital on paper. Um, first class stamps. Some hospitals have tried to increase productivity by moving to second class stamps. But you know what happens when they do that? The letter telling you your appointment's been cancelled arrives after the appointment. <laughs> um, so you people turn up. So where, where do you come from? Spain. Spain. And uh, would you, how, is, is the phone used much? Which, which province are you in in Spain? Which region? Because some, some of your Valencia, I think, has very good systems. and So some countries are making more progress. Hungary, do people... Does the hospital send letters to people email? Yeah, we, we don't. Um, so, uh, good. How much? How much, I think... If you could find out for me, for me, how much we... I haven't been able to find out in Oxford how much we spend in stamps every year. Just went round the trust. It's uh, over a million pounds for sure. Oh, you found that out, it, did you? It was emailed around one of the. Oh, was it? Before Christmas, they did the 12 uh, days of Christmas, the 12 ways oh, did they? to save money, and one of them was converting from first to second class stamps. Yeah, yeah. 700,000 pounds yes. across a year to convert from first to second class stamps, though we spend millions on Oh, yeah. On but we could send someone an email. Mm. Oh, my God. No, I couldn't do that. I mean, uh, confidentiality is what someone said to me once. Well, oh, yeah. If you're in a house of multi-occupation, a letter arrives. So, we're in the third revolution, and it's driven by citizens, knowledge, and this. The 20th century was the century of the doctor. The 21st century is the century of the person we call a patient, the citizen. The power has changed, not just in healthcare, but in, you know, this is uh, this is a man called Manuel Castell, the Spanish, who writes about the industrial revolutions. He doesn't write about healthcare, but he's... His work is very relevant to healthcare. So here's, we're in the third revolution, citizens, knowledge, and the smartphone. So, um, let's look at the, thank you, the, the second. So that, that's the first thing we've got to do, is make sure that individuals really, really understand what the options are. The second thing is to shift resources from budgets where there's lower value to higher value. So here's the way we spend money in the health service in England. <coughs> Diabetes, 90 million. Gastrointestinal, 100 million. Respiratory, 130 million. There's a lot more specialised cancer money. But well, how much do you think we spend in mental health? Tony? A quarter. Twice as much. Um, yep. No, that's million pounds per million population. Oh, per million population. Million pounds per million population. And people are really surprised when you tell them how much is spent a minute. Maybe it's not enough. But people often say, oh, 25 million per million population. It's a lot of money. And it's quite hard to see what we get for it. So um, we're starting to think about how we shift resources. And I'll come back to the point you raised. Of course, many people have more than one health problem. And we call this complexity. Uh, and the complexity is an 85-year-old woman with five diagnoses and 12 prescriptions looked after by a 50-year-old daughter with an alcoholic husband. Standard general practice. Any GPs in the room? 
GPs are very good at complexity. But when one of the problems goes wrong, they refer to a specialist. This is not really official language, complexity and complicated, but it's quite useful language, I think, in terms of, of um, speaking to people. Now, this is the first, and it varies um, from country to country. Where do you come from? I'm from Brazil. Brazil. Yeah. And how, is the, how does the money go from the government? Does it go to regions, does it? Or? Uh, not necessarily it goes from the government yeah. or anywhere else, but... Uh, <laughs> the healthcare is not priority there right now. No, but uh, never mind priority. But supposing there's a you know, certain sum of the government, the Ministry of Health get money. Yeah. Does it go to the regions first, or it goes to the regions? Yeah. So it's the same. So here is what the, the regions have to do something like this. In the, in Spain, it's a bit different than insurance-based countries. Um, you know, like uh, Germany and the Netherlands. So where insurance is in is a little bit different. But let's this. So this is what you have to do when you're a pair. You've got a population, and you've got to think, how do you allocate the resources? And um, this, is a, this is a very difficult thing to do, because there is no formula, there's no evidence that will allow you to do it. Um, uh, um, Ken Arrow, who died last year, Nobel Prize winner in economics, he developed something called the impossibility theorem. It's impossible to, uh, to have a, uh, you know, I can give you all the data you want and you put it into a computer. It doesn't do the sums. And what's very interesting, what's emerging is that, that uh, what the public expect is not magic. They know it's impossible. Um, but they, they, they want what Norman Daniels calls accountability for reasonableness. Namely, that the government of the state of Sao Paulo heard all the different patient groups. They didn't have any corruption. Um, they used the evidence in the same way for all the different groups. Accountability for reasonableness. That's all people are looking for. Um, because these are, we call these in a conference, we ran hellish decisions. These are impossible decisions of prioritization and rationing. Now, interestingly, the second level of allocation is this level. So once we've given the money to the people of Madrid for respiratory disease, then there's a second level of allocation. And really the, the payers, the ministers of health, they don't have the technical knowledge. And also what you find is that the variation between these three is so markedly different from one place to another. So if you go to... County A, uh, one county, and they've got a, a very good COPD service. And then you go 30 miles down the road, and they have very good asthma service. Why is that? Because in one place they had one clinician who was very good at getting money from the government, and then 30 miles down the road they had another clinician interested in something else. So there's often very marked imbalance. And so we are saying this is the clinicians. You see, if you take this, this is respiratory disease. Well, there was a new a big article, I don't have it with me, in the Sunday Times, a new drug for cystic fibrosis. Um, looks pretty good to me. So where's the money going to come from for the new drug for cystic fibrosis? We don't have any growth money, so it'll have to come from here. Now, it may be in one place, it would be from the asthma expenditure. Down the road in another county, it might be from the COPD or sleep. 
So it's starting to get the clinicians to think this way. The clinicians to think this way. Okay. So just um, to think of the, the three new things. Firstly, get the, the, the individual patients to understand. Secondly, to allocate resources optimally. The aim should be that the resources are distributed in such a way you could not get more value by shifting a pound or a dollar from one budget to another. No one's ever done it, of course, but it's called optimal allocation. Now, the third level of uh, value is population value. And we've called this population healthcare. So this is healthcare that doesn't focus on hospitals or primary care or teaching hospitals, but on populations in need. People with headache, people with asthma, people in the last year of life, population health care. You see, in every country I know, people, there's bureaucracies, regions or hospitals or universities or health centres. And you have to have bureaucracies, very important, but only for linear, simple tasks like the fair and open employment of staff. Bureaucracies are not good at dealing with complexity. Healthcare is complex. Bureaucracies are linear organisations. Healthcare is non-linear. And then we've got these things that you can see, self-care, informal care, primary, secondary, tertiary. So what we've been doing is introducing what we call 3D healthcare. Starting to turn all the budgets round in a different way. So we're really thinking about people with headache or people with back pain or people with um, epilepsy or inflammatory bowel disease or people with multiple conditions. These are um, now <laughs> another typical Oxford line. So I show this to someone who's an academic. He said, "Oh yes, but you're, it's quite 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 a good diagram, you are, but you're trying to represent algebra geometrically." <laughs> Um, so there we are. So, but anyway, it's much more complex than this, is the point I'm making. But it's certainly much more complex than this. This is linear, this thinking. And this is uh, complexity. So, you see, the sort of problems we see um, are uh, bro broken legs aren't a problem. So, if you get run down out in the street there and you get your leg broken, you don't even need to know where the hospital is. You'll get to the right place. Um, same as being, same as having cancer. Eventually, you get to the cancer hospital. But most of healthcare is more complex than that. You know, headache and asthma. And so what you see is that the people receiving the specialist service are not the people who benefit most. And what we need to do is to move and to change the way people think. So the specialists see people, but they're also thinking about the people they don't see. I was discussing type 2 diabetes with a colleague in Oxford University Hospital today, and I said, how many people have got type 2 diabetes in Oxfordshire? And he said, oh, 24,000 people. I said, what do you mean 24,000? He said, well, that's the ones on our hospital books. I said, well, what ones are not in the hospital books? Oh, I hadn't thought about them. And then I said, how many pharmacists are there in Oxfordshire? Because the pharmacists are seeing people and they don't know much about type 2 diabetes because it's 10 years since they left university. 
And the people in the hospital know a hell of a lot about type 2 diabetes, but they're not connected with the pharmacist. So you're starting to think about the specialist service being a knowledge service. Um, the president of Toyota said Toyota is a knowledge business. Very clever that, isn't it? And it wasn't just plastic and steel, it was, you know, our, the people who buy our cars, what are they like? The people who buy our competitors' cars, I don't know what they're like. What's the future going to be like for cars? That's knowledge. Toyota is a knowledge business. And I say to hospital chief execs, are you in the real estate business or the knowledge business? Some of them look a bit funny at me when I ask them. Because they've got this huge real estate, this huge hospital. I've got to run my hospital. I've got to keep it, you know, I need money to keep it well heated and lighted. But you employ all these clever people, but they don't necessarily, their knowledge isn't being used. So we need systems. We also need to think of if you had the budget altogether and you want to innovate, the money's got to come from the existing budget. Because that's all the money there is. And that might come in different ways. For example, we, so the third level of allocation here is we did a review of, of COPD and made a decision to move money from triple drug therapy to smoking cessation and rehabilitation. You might have moved money the other way from into drug therapy, but, but the clinicians and the patients together had to make that decision. The clinicians and the patients together make these sorts of decisions. So, how do you, sorry, how yeah. do you bring the patients to take this decision to this level of government? Uh, well, uh, this this uh, this is could be taken locally because the, the the service balance might be quite different from one city to another. But we just ask patient organisations to come in, and we say to the patients, okay. "I'm pointing at the patient here. Uh, look for the next hour and a half. Don't campaign for more money for COPD." Um, tomorrow you can do that, but we're here to discuss, are we getting optimal value from the money we've got? And the patient organizes say, yeah, yeah, we can see things that could be done differently. Tomorrow we'll campaign for more money for COPD, but we know it's got to come from somewhere else, but we can see. So we get patients involved, and they're very reasonable in my experience. So... The point I want to finish on here is that population healthcare and personal healthcare value are two sides of the one coin. Population value and personal value. So remember here, um, uh, Dave, I think I need you out here actually. All right. Okay, I'd like you to reproduce the Donabadian curve here, Dave. Is that the, the, the curve here? Okay, yeah. Benefit. The benefit, yep. Yeah. And the harm goes in a straight oh, line. Like yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. Right. Uh, this elbow straight, please, Dave. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, as you put more resources in from a population point of view, you reach the point of optimality. But also, as you put more resources in, you start to treat people who are less severely affected. So, yes, thank you very much. Big round of applause for. Uh, <laughs> so, when you start, say, cataract operations, you only treat people who are really, really going to benefit. The operation is necessary. Then people are less severely affected, but it's still appropriate. Then it may become inappropriate, and then this is the word which is now entering the medical literature. I don't know if you've looked at any papers on futility, where 
you know, almost everyone thinks it's going to do more harm than good. Sometimes, sometimes a, a major operation in you know, a frail elderly person, and it's the sort of case you were alluding to, Tony, to, well, come on, you know. The decent says, yeah, I'll get them off the table, but they'll die 10, year, 10 days later in ITU. Um, so, population and personal, it's not just that there's people like me think of populations, and there's people like you think of individual patients. These two things hang together. So how are we going to get there? Let's just um, finish. So this is my model of a health service. And I've had 22 reorganisations, most of which have made no difference at all. Um, Gandhi said, there's no structure that will make bad people good, but the wrong structure can make good people behave badly. So you have to think about silly things that people do because of the payment system. But the key thing are systems and culture. So this is what healthcare looks like in most countries. You can see it's an archipelago, patients swimming from one to another. Um, this is the way we spend the money. There's five different flows of cash in the health service in England. Do they speak to one another? No. If they did speak to another, well, it wouldn't be much difference really because you know, they're all defending their own budgets. So what we need to do is to do something like that. Um, a system for people with asthma or people with psoriasis or people with breast cancer. Sometimes you need super specialist care, um, you know, cancer radiotherapy or pouch surgery for um, inflammatory bowel disease. So something that's five boxes, but it's like a Russian doll. It's not the archipelago. It's an integrated set. It's a system. This is what a system looks like. It's in knowledge. This flows back all the time. And then and it's an open system. You're very much affected by, you know, for example, I don't know if you saw in the, the, uh, the news this morning about a company called Carillion. Employs 400 people in the Oxford Hospital. So something happens, you know, bugger it, uh, something's happened. <laughs> you know, uh, so it's an open system. It's, we can't, we're not in control of a closed system. And this is what a system looks like. Objectives, criteria and standards. So this was something I did about uh, 15 years ago, quite, quite difficult, sickle cell. Um, what are the objectives? Um, how would we measure it? And what are the standards? Objectives, criteria, standards. This is for a population. Don't worry about whether it's a hospital or a health centre or primary care or secondary care. It's an obsession with sickle cell disease. So we move from this to this. In the 20th century, professor, consultant, GP. 21st century, professor, consultant, GP, pharmacist, patient. It's the network century. The network century. The 20th century is the century of the hierarchy. The 21st century is the century of the network. And finally, culture. And usually the management theorists would, if they say structures maybe 10%, that leaves 90%, then systems 40% and culture 50%. Culture is the key thing. The culture, and it's leadership who shapes the culture. And you are the leadership of the future of the health service. And your job is, is to get the culture, the culture of stewardship or the culture of collaboration. These sort of cultural changes. 
and uh, sometimes images are good. Um, so if I'm, if you were all doctors and nurses and quarrelling with one another, I'd and say this is the most this is the most effective. It's a complex adaptive system. The ant colony. These guys will see us off. You know, the ant colony is the most much more flexible than the bees, but they're the cleverest. It's a complex adaptive system. The the you know, the soldier ants aren't trying to get one over the worker ants and. Um, and the queen ant doesn't tell them what to do. What does the queen ant do? Lays eggs. Yeah, so it's not a bureaucracy in any way. Communicating all the time, a very clear sense of mission. And um, in the, there's a fantastic book on the ants by Hall Dobler and Wilson, um, 177 pounds, but I bought it once when I got a lecture fee. There's a chapter on altruism. The ants give up their life for the good of the colony. I don't think you'd we ask you yet to give up your life for the good of the health service, but you never know. We I might have to. Already. Pardon? You've given it already, have you? <laughs> so to create a new language, uh, create a new culture, there's it's partly the the behaviour of the leadership, how they be, relate to one another, but it's also language. So we we spend a lot of time, and this is very awkward, of course, thinking about language, and. I, uh, so the, the new language, value, system, network, pathway, program. So the, pro the respiratory program has got systems for asthma, for COPD, for sleep apnea, for cystic fibrosis. Program, system, network, pathway. And then sometimes you've got to try and ban old language. So I don't like primary and secondary. Um, I don't like manager. Why do I like the word manager? Sorry? You know, it allows the clinicians to hate the managers. <laughs> um, so, are you a clinician in your day job? Yeah. So, yeah, well, no, yeah, you uh, say, but most of your colleagues would say, well, will you manage resources? Oh, no, no, I'm not a clinical director. And I would say, do you ever order an x ray? Yes, okay, you're managing resources. Mm -hmm. People who manage. So, you use language in that way to change the way. Language creates the new reality. The social reality is created by language. This is a man called John Searle, a philosopher. Language doesn't describe reality, language creates reality. So, just, uh, here's the new skills, and uh, we are now developing value modules and culture change modules to run as part of the evidence-based healthcare set. So these are the new sort of skills we, we would like the leadership, evidence and value-based healthcare. So just let's finish, turn to your neighbour for two minutes and think about how, if any way, this, what I've been saying, is relevant to the world in which you live and work in, in Brazil or Spain or wherever you come from. Just spend a um, couple of minutes thinking and then we can go, Dave, can we, for a reception and yes. discuss? Yes, those on the programme will, will deserve Yeah, it. yeah. Okay, so a couple of minutes just to think and then we'll take just some feedback and then... Um, go for a good walk. Okay, two minutes with your neighbour to reflect on what I've been saying and how it might change the way you went, you, you would work when you go back at the end of this week. Okay, a couple of minutes with your neighbour. And of course there are very practical things like the, um, when I came here there was one rheumatologist and there's now nine. 
Um, there was one practice just near the hospital with four full-time GPs. There's now nine part-time, uh, 12 part-time GPs. And we don't even have lunchtime meetings in Oxford with GPs. Why not? Why not? Why don't we have lunchtime meetings with GPs? And they're parking, car parking. Yeah, it's completely impossible. You couldn't organise it. It could be completely impossible. It would take about four hours to get there. And Have you tried to park at the John Radcliffe ever? Don't. Don't. No. Yeah. You know, we now say to patients, please allow an hour to find a car parking space. Um, so we get, we're a, diff a different, but we have to think in a different way. Just to finish, Dave and I are working on something um, that uh, is part of the change. So maybe we need, you see, if, if I were, and I'm still trying to do it, but um, how do we rebrand what we're doing? And so one brand is healthcare is what you do for yourself, not a. We deliver professional health services, but healthcare is what you do for yourself. Don't point, said my wife, why not? Say I, I'm from Glasgow. <laughs> healthcare is what you do for yourself. Uh, so we're thinking, we're, well, we have launched uh, an activity therapy service um, that everyone with long-term condition will be given activity um, prescriptions. So before you get metformin, you'll get three months of um, exercise in the Mediterranean diet. Most people will probably still need metformin, but the signal we send you by just giving you a pill, or oh, hypercholesterolemia, mm. here's a pill. But you need the press say, to help you with Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, the press, are, the press are, we're getting the press. Uh, I'm very much criticised by my public health colleagues for writing the Daily Mail. Um, but I have to point out to them that writing the Guardian is not going to solve the problem of health inequalities. Um, no, it's very, very interesting, the last point, that, um, and it's broadening it out from healthcare, that when we launched the, we a walking app, we've got a walking app for brisk walking, um, www.nhs.uk slash one u it's a very good app you've got to walk briskly it tells you how much brisk walking you're doing and we, we said it's an environmental problem it's not a lifestyle issue you know it's sitting nine hours a day at a computer screen which is what most people do um, it's an environmental problem and the, the papers that usually criticise us is na it's called nanny state um, you know, the public reaction to what people like me say, but they, yeah, it is, it is, life's difficult. You're, commu you're commuting for an hour and then sitting for nine hours and then commuting for an hour home. So Dave and I are saying it's not just medicine, um, it's, it's what you do for yourself. Very interesting, I just heard Dave, there's a, a trial of a, a randomised control trial of chemotherapy in St Thomas's Hospital. And the people who got chemotherapy and exercise finished the course of chemotherapy. And the ones who got chemotherapy without exercise, lots of them didn't finish the course because they didn't feel well. And so there's all sorts of interesting things to play for. Okay, nice to meet you all. Thank you for coming to Oxford, those who are coming.